Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Kurdistan Connection uh, with myself, Matthew Broomfield, uh, here on Medjian News. Um, so as uh, regular listeners will know on this show, then we try to draw some links between what's happening in Kurdistan, all four regions of Kurdistan, and wider issues of geopolitical, uh, military, diplomatic significance, particularly relating to the West. Um, and today um, is a very important day um, everywhere and in Kurdistan, but also particularly in um, the region which is home to the Yazidi people. Um, uh, so Sinjar or Shengal as it's variously known, uh, because nine years ago today uh, on, the, on the 3rd of August um, is the official date where we commemorate uh, the ISIS genocide against uh, that religious minority. Um, in which thousands of people were to lose their lives of an already very embattled um, community and thereafter um, many thousands more, particularly women and children, went missing and suffered um, all sorts of depredations along with the displacement of that community and all, all sorts of other issues following on from that um, ISIS genocide which has been recognised by a number of international bodies. So it's been nine years um, and of course there remains much work to be done uh, with um, and alongside uh, this community to help them as they continue to come through this event and try and preserve, I think, um, their religion, their culture, their way of life in the Middle East. And I'm very happy to say we're joined today by um, uh, the, uh, one of the ideal guests we could hope for, really, to address these issues. And Nadine Menza, Nadine, you're very welcome. Thank you. Thanks so much so, for having me. Great yeah, being here. Thank you. Yeah, so Nadine, um, as, as I'm sure listeners will know, has travelled very often um, to the region, um, is right now, as she will explain in a moment, um, in Iraqi Kurdistan. Nadine is currently the president of the Secretariat for International Religious Freedoms and uh, formerly head of the US Commission on International Religious Freedoms and has done a lot of work on this issue with the Yazidi community. So, yeah, Nadine, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Yeah, perhaps, yeah, maybe you just want to say, um, what you're doing there in the region, first of all. Yeah, so I really came here to support the Yazidi community, community knowing um, that this has been nine years in, they're still unable to return home. Sinjar is still in shambles without essential services. So we, um, I was able to go to Baghdad and join 27 civil society organizations that united together to put on their own conference to, to um, commemorate this day. Um, and then I was able to come back up here to Erbil and, and join um, again to, to remember on this important day. So it's, it's really an honor to come alongside 
my friends and, and just offer support and see how we can rally the international community to better support them. So you said the, uh, this conference that you, you attended earlier this week in Baghdad was organized by 27 Yazidi yeah. civil society organizations. Was there a sense that the Yazidis are having to take the lead on these issues because other actors aren't playing their role? Absolutely. There, there was a real sense that nine years in, um, that it's time for them to come together and have a really concrete demand. And they do, which is to ask the Iraqi government actually to demand 1% of the annual budget or $1.5 billion for Sinjar reconstruction. And for that to be done by next year at this time, which would be the 10th anniversary of the genocide. You know, this is an easy thing for us to rally around. It's an easy thing for the, the United States and other um, embassies and, and, and foreign offices and, and leaders to be able to go to Iraq and, and demand this um, because they can't recover from this genocide living in tents, um, unable to return home. There's no essential services. There's not water. They haven't rebuilt. Um, and of course, there's still security situation issues, although so many would go back if there were services. So it's time to push hard and, and Iraqi government has the funds to do this. They're actually quite a wealthy country. So for them to not spend any money in Sinjar, just a few million here and there is unacceptable. So it's time for the international community to rally around the Yazidis and, and, and support this demand they have. So and what, why is it that the federal Iraqi uh, authorities aren't sending um, more than, as you said, a few million here and there to the Yazidi homeland. Well, there has there long been discrimination in Iraq against the Yazidi community. And, and there's been general dysfunction in Iraq. I mean, they couldn't even form a government for how long, which they're, they're often caught up in, in um, the, 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 the drama of Baghdad um, to even think past Baghdad. And, and with the conflict with, with the KRG that they've had in, in terms of, of the budget and, um, of course, the geopolitical issues is why having the international community bring this to their attention and force them to deal with this and to fund Sinjar is a really good use of diplomatic relations at this time. Because, mm. so, um, as you maybe suggested then, in Iraq, then there is very often sort of struggles between, to put it mildly, between the autonomous Kurdish region in the north and the central authorities over funding and getting the money to pay for this or that service. Um, is there is there a kind of a lack of a platform through which the Yazidis can make their voices heard in Baghdad? There, there is. They haven't had much access. I mean, right now, fortunately, there is actually Yazidi who's serving as a senior advisor to the prime minister who sits in, this, in um, the, the, the council meetings. Um, and because of that, we have actually seen some positive um, actions. Um, the administration formally recognized for the first time in 47 years ownership of residential properties in Sinjar by Yazidis. Um, and of course, the Yazidi Survivors Law was passed by parliament in 2021 um, to provide reparations for Yazidis, but also Christians, Turkmen, Shabak, um, and others who, who are victims of ISIS. But it's moving slowly. There isn't enough staff to process all the claims. So it's, it's still not quite um, um, implemented the way it needs to be done, but these are at least some positive things that have happened in the recent years. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I suppose you've you've sort of addressed this somewhat already, but you, you have you yourself have visited um, Sinjar, Shengal? I have, I have not. Mm -hmm. I have not. 
But perhaps, uh, nonetheless, you, if you could just say a little bit more uh, about what are the major issues facing that region now? So okay, we talk about humanitarian problems, service provision, political right. problems, security problems. Yeah, so of course we talked about how so many can't go home, their homes are still not rebuilt. Um, and there's no water, electricity, Wi-Fi. Um, you know, so much of the in, uh, the the Yazidi community in these camps are well connected. They're they're global now, and to go back somewhere where they can't even get on the internet just isn't an option. Um, they, there was an agreement between the KRG and the Iraqi government, the, the Sinjar Agreement, 2020, and that hasn't been implemented. Of course, it was the agreement was done in secrecy behind the back of the Yazidi community, they weren't included, which was unacceptable. And so, although everyone has come rallied around this agreement simply because the Yazidi community did themselves, even though they were they were disappointed, it's super important that it's implemented, but with the Yazidi community um, every step of the way. No mayor has been appointed, and this is such an, an important point um, because the KRG and the Iraqi government need to agree, and of course they're not agreeing, but it needs to be somebody that will represent the Yazidi community and others. There are Muslims and others living in, in, in Sinjar. People in Sinjar should have a say in their own governance. They haven't had an election since 2003. So, you know, the U.S. obviously, you know, occupied these areas during that time. So it's disappointing to me that the U.S. didn't stand up stronger for this community when they had so much control of Iraq. Um, of course, the Hashishabi, the Iranian-backed um, um, militias are such a problem. Um, and, and intimidate, control the area, and make it difficult. And, and of course, there's the YBS fighters there, the Yazidi fighters. You know, Turkey calls them the PKK. Um, they bombed a hospital last year, killing eight, injuring 20, and even took credit for it. But of course, they weren't PKK members. They were Yazidi um, gen genocide survivors that were Iraqi that were killed. So the good news is we've recently seen um, a complaint brought to the UN um, about that. But it just shows you Turkey continues to do airstrikes and kill civilians, um, forcing people to flee back to the camps. And of course, you know, knowing that there's no justice for these victims, that there's only been a few few court cases, and, and we're so thankful to Germany for taking the lead on that. But there needs to be a lot more done. Yes, sure. I think actually my my own government, the British government, just this week uh, finally recognized the genocide after um, some years of pressure. It was a long time coming, but we welcome it. And um, hopefully it will be an important um, movement. And maybe the timing is good for them to st step in and, and really press the uh, Iraqi government to step up. Yeah, because yes, because I suppose kind of as you as you've demonstrated then, um, of course, but most people in the West will think of the Yazidis if they do at all in, in relation to ISIS. But Although there is a continued ISIS insurgency, this region that's faced faces kind of structural uh, issues and this kind of hodgepodge um, of, of different forces that are all present in the region. Um, and it's, uh, let's see if we think about some of these Yazidi groups that were present at that conference um, earlier this week. What do they think about the sort of political future for this for this region? Is there a consensus about some things that might be good? Um, is it about allowing elections, having a mayor from the region, or what are the kind of possible next steps? Oh, I think there was a most unity that we've seen in, in the Yazidi community wanting these things, wanting a mayor, wanting um, to pressure the, the, the government to step in, um, wanting the, the, the international community to help find the 27 um, women and children still missing. There are so many high-tech solutions now. 
Um, but yet it's, it's all there, there's an essential place. I know that the care G has some folks in office working on it and, and others, but a database to be able to look, you know, put photos in to age photos, you know, we need some technology and, and perhaps the businesses that can come alongside and support that governments would be willing to fund a big effort. Um, so it, it seemed to me that there was a lot of unity in, in the committee, the community wanting these things. You know, they're, they're, they want a, a future. We we just, at, um, I'm on the board of the Sinjar Academy that's run by Murad Ismail. And he just um, had a class on advocacy and he expected 30 to 40 to sign up and 290 signed up. 150 finished the course, you know, so this is the kind of interest there is in the Yazidi community to, to be advocates for the, for, for their community, but also to, to get an education and, and to um, plan for their future. So, so there's a lot of hope. Um, these are bright young people that, that want a future, but right now Iraq isn't giving it to them. And, and that's why they, they just want a life with dignity. They're not asking for a whole lot. Um, so many of us that live in, in the U.S. and other countries, and, and you, where these are just common acts, things we have, but they're still intense in a camp nine years later. Um, and um, another thing that's so frustrating is you know, I, I met with a group of young men, beautiful young men, who had all escaped ISIS. They were taken as fighters, as, as boys, separated, from, ripped from their families, put on the front lines. They didn't really fight for ISIS. They, they were put on the front lines so they'd be killed first. All of them have their stories of how they escaped, came back to, um, expecting to be able to reunite with their family. Some of their families had been killed. Some of their families had been um, resettled abroad. And some of them that were resettled abroad, the countries wouldn't take the young men. So they're still separated from their mothers after all these years. Really heartbreaking stories to find out there's not one program by the UN or anyone else for these young men that escaped ISIS. You know, so they wanted education. And one of them was talking about how he wanted to go back to school. And they said, oh, you're too old how could you be too old to go back to school? Um, so the, these are the kind of things that the Iraqi government really, they're very rich, rich country. Um, and, and this is a tiny amount of money to put into Sinjar to give these people a chance for a future. It, it's not asking too much. It's a really reasonable request, which is why I think it, it's a good one for the international community to rally mm -hmm. behind. And so when I suppose when we talk about um, the future for the Yazidi community, that means we also have to talk about a reckoning with the past. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, you, I mean, you, you've mentioned now some of the ways in which ISIS uh, inflicted such harm on that community. Um, so, yeah, okay, let, let's begin. There's been talk again recently about um, trials for foreign ISIS members uh, possibly to be collected in northern Syria. Um, as we know, there are trials ongoing for local members, um, both in northern Syria for the thousands and thousands of Syri uh, Syrians out there, and also across the border in Iraq, they have their own courts. Um, but is there a sense, again, I suppose, among the Yazidi community that these trials so far are sort of insufficient in terms of uh, reckoning with what happened um, during the genocide. Yes, that there's um, a real frustration that so many have been tried with just terrorism in, in places like Iraq instead of actually a crime against a specific person or even genocide or crimes against humanity. So I, I think with the UK having this designation that's so important that this was in fact genocide, and I know Evelina Ochab, a, a, a great defender um, uh, in UK and, and a leader on, on these issues, has been also starting to talk about 
um, tribunals again. And I know that just a couple of years ago, I sat with leaders on a Zoom call with leaders from the State Department in the U.S., uh, a leader from Northeast Syria. Everyone was agreeing it was time to call for, for tribunals yet. No movement on it. And I know in Northeast Syria that they've announced they're going to just do their own courts. You know, they have over 10,000 fighters in multiple prisons throughout Northeast Syria, in addition to the 50,000 plus ISIS family members. And the international community is not dealing with these things. And and it's it's a lot to expect, you know, the autonomous administration in Northeast Syria to do this all by themselves. They're not even a nation state. And, you know, they have all these threats in our trying to govern and they're doing a decent job of taking care of their people. Um, but the international community needs to step in and support tribunals where, where people are, are being tried individually, um, having their day in court for the crimes they committed. There's a lot of evidence that UNITAD has been collecting. In fact, I know they had said that there's evidence waiting for a court. You know, we have fighters identified in, in these prisons. So there needs to be um, some mechanisms to bring this all together to find justice um, for those victims, and also as a, as a way of a deterrent for these kind of crimes in the future. If there is no cost for these, it, then, then it, the deterrent doesn't exist, which, which means it's more likely to happen again. And so I think it's a, we're at a really good point where hopefully in the next year we'll maybe see some movement. So as we come into the 10th anniversary, there will be a movement towards justice. There will be some more investments in Sinjar, and maybe we'll have a sense that we're finally making some progress for this beleaguered community. It's so beautiful that, that, like I said, is not asking for much, simply wants to live with dignity. And, and there's just a little bit from the international community could help them get there. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, you mentioned, for, for example, the role that yeah, this evidence from UNITAD could play in the pursuit of more complete and thorough justice, let's say, for ISIS. Um, are, there, are there other ways that the US in particular can play a more proactive role in pushing for justice, so whether through the coalition or mm -hmm. of its own initiative, what kind of steps could the U.S. be taking? Well, I do I do know right now the U.S. has funded organizations to collect evidence. <clears throat> so they are looking ahead and hoping that there will be opportunities to use this. I'd love for the U.S. to take a leadership role again in calling for tribunals, for funding tribunals, for partnering on tribunals. So I don't think the U.S. is quite all the way there at this point right now, but I do know that they are at least um, being really serious about collecting evidence in the hopes that there will be a, a way to use that evidence to try these ISIS fighters. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I, so I wanted to ask, um, as we, we approach from the end of our conversation, obviously we've spoken about the need for, I suppose, this community, they have, they have their rights, particularly as this embattled religious community, which has suffered so much. But kind of beyond these purely humanitarian concerns, are there reasons why Western governments should be concerned about what's happening in Sinjar, what's happening in Iraq, what's happening in northern Syria? What's the kind of geopolitical significance of the, the struggles of this people? It's, it's really interesting because it, the video they showed um, on August 1st in Baghdad, a, a beautiful video they showed, and I hope it will be posted, um, talked about their frustration having this turned from a humanitarian crisis into a geopolitical crisis. And I thought that really hit the nail on the head because it has become that. You know, Turkey wants this land. Iran, this is an important, you know, belt for, for them, for the land bridge they have to, to go all the way through Syria into Lebanon. And so this land, 
holy land for, for the Yazidis, their homeland where they live, is wanted by a lot of people. And and so it's turned into this high stakes situation with all these armed forces on the ground that have all different um, goals. And, and frankly, a lot of these militias, so many of them are funded by the Iraqi government, most of them, even though they have separate goals from each other, they're, they're kind of like highly paid, highly paid by a nation state, Iran, gangs, basically. And so you have this situation with, with all these gangs, militias, however you want to call them, lined up with nation states that, that want to have a presence there. And, and in the meantime, you know, the Yazidis are the victims of this. But for the U.S. and the U.K. and others, having this land controlled by Iran um, or Turkey is not in the best interest of the United States or U.K. or anybody that is wanting stability and peace in Iraq um, and in Syria. And, and this area right, is, is just so critical for that. So there's a lot of reasons that even if a nation state like the United States or the U.K. is looking at this from a selfish standpoint, which, of course, states do, this is in the best interest of these countries to do what they can to ensure that there's peace and stability. And what we've seen is around the world, and I think we saw this in Afghanistan and plenty of places, you know, all the weapons in the world will not make a place safe and secure as we've seen in Afghanistan. You can armed militaries with the best training, the best weapons known to humans. And, and if there's nothing worth fighting for, they're gonna put them down and walk away. And that's what we saw in Afghanistan. By contrast, in Northeast Syria, they have something worth fighting for. They have built a government that protects their rights, that gives them a chance for a future. That's why they're still there, and that's why they're, they're standing f for something, because they're standing for their government. Here we have you know, Sinjar, where the Yazidis don't have a say in their own government governance. They don't have a say in their own security. And, um, and, and they're just waiting for everyone else to make decisions for them, which is just unacceptable. So I think at the end of the day, you know, they need to have a say in their mayor. They, they're, they're supposed to be 2,500 security um, as part of the Sinjar agreement that, that's, that's going to be Yazidis. Yet we were hearing that, that militias were going to be able to choose who was going to be those people. So they're, they're going to be people loyal to them, not loyal to the Yazidi community. The YBS was going to be excluded, which doesn't make any sense because you know, the, the narrative of the YBS or Yabesha, as they call them here, um, is that they're the PKK. So when they say, Turkey says, I'm going after the PKK, what he's really doing is he's going after genocide survivors that are simply trying to pr protect their own community. They were sure started and trained by the PKK, but I've been assured there are no Turkish PKK members on the ground, that, that, that this is Yazidis trying to protect their own community. You know, rename them, give them different uniforms, take them out of Yabesha and put them into a a, a security force that, that protects their own people. So I, so I think that so many of the goals from Iraq, the KRG and others um, are, are, are looking to protect their interests and, and, and it ends up actually re-traumatizing the Yazidi community by pushing out their own people and not letting them be a part of their own governance, their own security. These are really simple things to, to request of them, but super important that the international community press hard that the Yazidis have a say in, in, in these decisions that are being made. And it's not just a fight among the governments around them to make these decisions for them. Thank you. Thank you very much, Nadine. I think that's um, yeah, a great summary of, of several quite com complicated issues to come, come to an end on. And yeah, thank you so much for 
for joining us today. Um, and I know that the Yazidi people and other peoples in northern Syria appreciate your constant efforts to bring their voices and their demands, as we've heard today, um, to the West and to, to power brokers in the West as well. So thank you very much. Well, thank you so much for having me and for addressing these important issues. Not enough people are talking about them, so it's it's really a privilege to be here and be able um, to communicate the importance of the situation at this very moment. And my heart goes out to all those Yazidis and, and others who have lost their family. Today is is a really sad day where um, they're remembering, you know, folks that, that are still gone. I and often we think of of only the girls that were taken and sold, which was horrific. Um, but I was with Naomi Kickler from from the Holocaust Museum, who's also here, and and she was talking about, you know, she was visiting a camp, and there's an older man who lost his wife and his family, and he's by himself now. You know, we talked about these young men. There's so genocide presents itself in so many ways, but it's it's all trauma, and pain. And so today, you know, be thinking about the Azidis, saying a prayer for them, and and as we stand with them, that that they can recover and, and get on with their lives, and 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 that they'll there will be some hope for them. Absolutely. Um, yeah, it's unbelievable. It's been nine years already, um, and there's still so much more work to do. Um, yeah, thank you so much, Nadine. This has been the Kurdistan Connection um, with myself, Matthew Broomfield, here on Media News. Until the next episode, goodbye.